You're listening to the Boise State Podcast from right here at Boise State University. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Brady Moore from the Office of Communications and Marketing, joined today with Sienna Madrid, also from the Office of Communications and Marketing. Today we're sitting down with Greg Kaltnecker, Director of the Intermountain Bird Observatory here at Boise State. Can you just kind of tell me a little bit about what the IBO does and, and some of the partnerships that you're working with? Yeah. And how it was founded, please. Sure. Um, sure. The IBO is it's an academic research and outreach program of the university. We're housed in the Department of Biological Sciences, and so we're part of the College of Arts and Sciences. And um, the, the IBO has been around close to 25 years now. It was founded back in the early 1990s by myself and uh, some other students and professors in the Department of Biology. Uh, we, we started by looking around the southern part of Idaho, trying to find a place where we could view raptor migration. And we did end up finding you know, several sites, both north and south of the Snake River Plains, but the, the greatest concentration of migrating raptors was right here on the Boise Ridge near actually the first the first place we found was near bogus basin and we kept working down the boise ridge until we finally found the lucky peak site which is where the the highest concentration of of all of these migrating birds is found so we started the first couple of years just doing hawk watch and uh, we, we tried to trap and ban migrating raptors as well we were quite successful at that few years later we noticed you know a great turnover of migrating songbirds and we started netting and banning songbirds as well and found that there's just a huge turnover during the fall migration of songbirds almost daily and you know thousands if not hundreds of thousands of songbirds migrate through this you know this this area during the fall uh, a few years later same thing we noticed a lot of owls calling at night and we did an exploratory project to try and trap migrating owls and found that there's also two species of owls that migrate along the Boise front during the fall in pretty good numbers, really. Yeah, so um, the program has grown though over the years. We, we started with that as kind of our signature project, the bird migration project, but we started doing uh, other types of bird work for different sponsors, you know, in the local area. And this has expanded in recent years now to the whole Intermountain region. We're working in four or five different states. We do projects for federal agencies like the Forest Service, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we also, you know, bring in quite a bit of support from uh, private donors and private foundations as well. But basically, we study migratory birds, um, either bird migration or uh, some aspect of breeding, you know, the breeding biology of migratory birds. And we've kind of created a model focusing on, uh, you know, rare, endangered birds or, you know, species of concern that, that are of concern with the, you know, the federal land management agencies. So things like the long-billed curlew is a species that's in decline throughout most of its range. And we've, uh, for about five years now, been studying long-billed curlews for the BLM, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and other land management agencies like that. Uh, throughout, throughout, throughout the West, I mean, I think we're working in five different states now with long-billed curlews trying to understand more about their breeding biology and the threats that they face 
and also trying to track their migration routes and figure out where they're wintering and the routes they take on the way. Um, you know, very interesting. We're trying to piece together a map of, of what we call connectivity, you know, throughout the Western United States for that particular species. So you've been tracking bird migrations around, I mean, basically through Boise for the last 25 years. What are some overarching trends that you've seen? Well, um, basically most of the most of the common raptor species are not changing or they're increasing slightly. And I think this is, you know, still a result of um, the DDT era, you know, and getting DDT out of the environment and, and uh, making that, uh, you know, restricting the use of DDT. I think, you know, most of the larger and more common raptor species are recovering from that and doing quite well. There are still a few concerns, uh, things like golden eagles and American kestrels uh, are showing declines uh, throughout, you know, throughout the West. So I think there's, there's some concerns there. Um, there are also some interesting things happening with regard to climate change. And we're seeing shifts in migration timing. And also um, uh, some of the other work that's been going on in the Department of Biology here with some, some of the other uh, faculty, uh, they're showing that there's, there's actually, um, what's the best way to explain this? Uh, birds are wintering further north as well. Oh, mm -hmm. so they're traveling longer distances because of changing climates? Well, or the opposite. If they're coming from the north and migrating south in the winter, they're, they're migrating, uh, they're not migrating as far south. Oh, okay, I see. Mm -hmm. And so at sites, at migration sites, especially like ours, what we can see is in a perceived decline you know, in the number of birds migrating past the site. And what may actually be happening is they're just not migrating as far and they're wintering further north. So. Have you done any um, research on windmills and the effects of windmills? I've noticed a lot of windmills going in above Lucky Peak and it seems like that's part of the yeah. migratory area of birds. Yeah, it's certainly happening. It's been happening, you know, for a decade or more now throughout the Western U.S.'s uh, development of uh, wind power. And we personally, you know, we haven't as a, as a group done very much research on, uh, you know, the effects of these wind turbines on migrating birds, but uh, certainly other other faculty in the department have, and, and also, you know, a lot of our graduates, this has been quite an industry over the last decade, and a lot of graduates from the, from the uh, Raptor Biology Program and the Biology Master's Program here at Boise State, I know for a fact are, uh, you know, kind of in key positions in the industry right now, studying that very thing, you know, the effects of wind turbines on bird movement, bird migration, mortality to birds. Um, there's been quite a, uh, quite an issue with golden eagles, you know, throughout the West, throughout their range in the Western U.S. because they're, you know, they're open species. They like, uh, you know, these open landscapes and they certainly use wind to move around these landscapes and they're very vulnerable, you know, compared to other raptor species. They're quite vulnerable to being struck by wind turbines. So there has been a tremendous amount of work that's been done in the West on golden eagles and mortality uh, as a result of wind, you know, wind development. So. so how do you jump from studying bird species uh, throughout Idaho and the Northwest to Gorongosa? 
Well, that that was a pretty fortuitous, uh, what would you call it, meeting, I guess, uh, between us and the gentleman who's who's funding most of that restoration work in Gorongosa National Park. It turns out he's from Idaho, from Eastern Idaho. That's Greg Carr. Greg Carr is his name, yeah. And uh, he likes Boise State, and he certainly likes birds. And some, we, we met him several years ago, and uh, he became interested in the work that we were doing locally and took a leap of faith, I guess, and invited us to, to be a part of that restoration work at, at Gorongosa. Because the, the work at Gorongosa at the time was lacking, you know, kind of a concerted effort to study birds at the park. Um, I, I know that Greg also likes our, uh, the way that we work with, with students, work with interns, especially international interns. We've always, um, you know, we have a habit of hosting interns from other countries. Um, and he, I think he, he appreciated that and he could see a benefit for the park in us doing that. And so, you know, as part of our work there, working with birds at Gorongosa, we're also, um, identifying and training and mentoring, you know, local interns there uh, and bringing them here as well to uh, have them study birds with us here in, in, uh, in Boise. And I think one of his, you know, long-term dreams or visions for the park is to, to select, you know, sort of hand select local Mozambican students, send them off for training uh, and even university work, you know, around the world at different universities and then have them return to Mozambique and become sort of key players in conservation, you know, in that country. So walk us through uh, what your days look like when you're in Gorongosa. At the park, uh, we get up fairly early because it does, it gets hot there the times of year that we're there. Um, and we head out to try and find a suitable location to trap. Uh, the, the work that I've been doing at Gorongosa deals with uh, vultures. There are four critically endangered vulture species in the park and they're, um, you know, endangered throughout their range in Africa. What does critically endangered mean? For someone like me, does well, that mean there's two left, five? No, there's more than that. But given the threats and the limited range that they have, um, I, there's a you know there's a good chance they could go extinct in the foreseeable future. Got it. Okay. I mean, that's that's one of the definitions of critically endangered is that they could they could go extinct you know in the, in the near future. So, um, so there are these four species we've been we've been focusing on a couple of them: the white-backed vulture, the white-headed vulture, and the hooded vulture. Those those are three common species of Gorongos. And it turns out, you know, throughout Africa, that these that these protected areas, the national parks like Gorongosa and Kruger and you know some of the other big parks in Africa, for a lot of these vulture species are really the last. Of the last strongholds for the species outside of these protected areas they may fly over you know going from one protected area to the other but they really don't uh, you know they're not common anymore outside of these large protected areas so we're trying to identify their movements through radio telemetry by using satellite telemetry and that's something we can do from back here in Boise once we get the satellite units on the birds 
we can track their you know their moves once once an hour every day you know all day every day from from Boise here uh, how many vultures are you currently tracking we currently have uh, I think 10 that we're tracking of and two different species what are their lifespans like like how long will you be tracking them um, until the radios either fail that they have a, a solar backpack unit so um, it, the battery is continuously charged as long as it's in the Sun and so um, you know there is some small amount of failure with the radios but uh, so far I mean I think we've lost two or three birds in just a little over a year uh, but given the threats to these species they're they're being poisoned you know at a pretty high rate uh, I mean the, the radios could conceivably last 10 12 or more years but I bet they won't last that long, just given the mortality, the, the high rate of mortality that's occurring with these species now. Why are they being poisoned? They've been poisoned for quite a while um, with the, you know, mostly by farmers or ranchers, and their intent has been to kill the predators or the scavengers, you know, things like lions and hyenas and jackals. And uh, the vultures would come into these poison carcasses and die sort of inadvertently. But what's happening, and this is a uh, you know very startling trend, I guess, is when the, within the last few years now, the ivory poachers are killing vultures through poisoning intentionally because. Uh, when they make a kill, you know, and sometimes it takes several days for them to remove the tusks from an elephant or, you know, from a, a rhino or something like that. Um, in the meantime, the vultures find the carcass, they circle over, and they kind of key off or identify, you know, the fact that there's a carcass there to the law enforcement agents. And so the ivory poachers are thinking, well, if we can kill all these vultures, we'll be able to more successfully poach. And so now this has been going on, you know, the last four or five years. There have been some major, major um, mortality events, you know, 500, 600, 800,000, 2,000 vultures, you know, at one carcass site. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually lost one of our <clears throat> units a few months ago just over the border in Zimbabwe, <clears throat> very near uh, a site that had been identified as a you know, as a poisoning site by, by poachers. So, um, I don't know, that's one of the reasons that we're tracking them is just to see how long we can continue to track them. Hopefully identify, you know, these threats and identify these mortality factors to help, you know, help conserve the species in the long run. How, how uh, many times a year do you travel to Mozambique to, to be in the park and work in the park? The last couple of years, it's just been once a year. It may, I may end up going again uh, in the fall. And then next year, there's actually a, a kind of a major raptor conference in South Africa that's in the fall. So I'll probably travel twice, at least twice next year as well to Gorongosa. And, and uh, you know, Gorongosa, like I say, it was sort of for, fortunate uh, that we fell into this relationship with Greg Carr and were invited to work there. But before that, 
Uh, Gorongos is about the fifth international project that we've worked on. And since we study bird migration here, you know, along the Boise front, there are other major bird migration sites, you know, all around the world. And we've made kind of a habit of collaborating with other researchers at these sites to study raptor and, and other, you know, soaring bird migration. Uh, one of the first places we worked was in South America, um, and we helped help set up one of the very first hawk migration, you know, count sites in Colombia. After that, we worked in Israel, and is, Israel is probably one of the largest, I mean, one of the most major bird migration sites in the world. Birds from, you know, all through Europe, and Asia migrate, you know, through the Middle East, around the Mediterranean, and through the Middle East, and there's quite a narrow, you know, uh, a narrow concentration point where they don't have to cross water that runs right through Israel, and then across the deserts uh, into Africa. I mean, the, the, their birds are very similar to ours, that a lot of the migrants, you know, come up into the temperate zone to breed in the spring and migrate south in the fall and winter to spend the, their winters, you know, in, in our case in Central South America, in their case in Africa, that's where most of these birds are migrating to. Um, for about 10 years we've had a collaboration in the southern part of Spain, which is another major bird migration uh, concentration bottleneck there in the, the south of Spain near Gibraltar. There's about an 11 kilometer crossing over the Mediterranean, and so hundreds of thousands, you know, if not millions of soaring birds, um, and birds of all types cross the, the Mediterranean there, the Straits of Gibraltar. So that's a fantastic site. It really is a beautiful place to go. So I know Boise State has one of the, if not the, we have the only raptor uh, master's program in the nation, correct? So how uh, rare, how, put that in a global context. Like is this one of the few places where students can come in the world to get the kind of training that, that Boise State provides? It is, and, and the fact that we have, you know, the only master's degree in raptor biology doesn't mean other researchers and other universities aren't studying raptors. It just right. means that the, that specialized degree can only be attained here in Boise State. Um, but we work with researchers you know, all over the world who have students studying raptors. But I would say that Boise State, you know, is a, it's, a, it's a key university for the study of raptors. And Boise in general, there is so much raptor research going, going on in the Boise area, Southern Idaho. Not only by Boise State, but you know, by partners like USGS, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the Peregrine Fund is located here in Boise. Uh, the uh, the Snake River Birds of Prey area. There's been there's been you know long term long term research on raptors that's been going on in the Birds of Prey area for thirty or forty years now. So Boise is really kind of a hub of raptor biology. Having Boise State and the raptor biology program, and then our program, the Intermountain Bird Observatory, studying migratory, you know, migrating raptors. I think there are so many resources here in Boise for uh, raptor biologists or, or up-and-coming raptor biologists that it's a great place for them to be. 
from here, where do your alumni typically go? What sort of fields of research or do you see them working in now? Uh, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because Sienna and I were just talking about that. I think that would be a great feature someday for uh, you know the research magazine on campus because our graduates have done really well. Um, they've placed in, in you know many higher and influential positions within the local you know and regional even even beyond uh, federal land management agencies like the Forest Service, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, and we currently work with you know several of our past graduates who are in positions of influence that uh, have been able to you know come back to us and partner on research and monitoring programs throughout the Intermountain region and throughout the world, actually. These radio transmitters that we're using at Gorongosa uh, National Park in Mozambique, uh, I think we've, we've put out 12 of them now. Each one is, costs about $4,000, and the data to, to you know, Download the data on an annual basis is about another thousand. So we talk about five five thousand dollars each, and we have twelve of them that we've deployed at Gorongosa. Those were all donated by a uh, consulting firm that one of our past graduates works works for. So you know it's a major major contribution to our work and to Boise State University from uh, past you know. That, that was influenced by a past graduate. So, so yeah, yeah, other, other graduates, there's uh, another fellow that we work with quite often that works at the Fish and Wildlife Service here in Boise, another one in Alaska that works for Fish and Wildlife Service that's been very influential in uh, helping move ahead a kind of a coordinated regional effort looking at short-eared owls so another species of concern, grassland species of concern, kind of like the, the long-billed curlew. And so IBO now is going to be sort of the driving force in a, uh, you know, a coordinated multi-state survey effort for, for these shorter dollars. So what is, personally, what is your, one of your best bird memories or bird experiences? These vultures in Gorongosa, I think we caught two species the last time we were there, uh, white-headed vulture and battler, and both of them are probably the most beautiful birds I've ever seen in my life, so just to be able to see something like that up close and you know, have it in the hand and, and uh, study it and hopefully, hopefully promote conservation of those species is is it's pretty rewarding to me. Are they big birds? Yeah, yeah, big as an eagle. I mean, they're quite quite large, even bigger, maybe heavier than a, uh, the you know the our bald eagle. Well, what's uh, on the horizon for the IBO? What are you guys working on coming up in the next few years? One of the things I'm most excited about is that a few years ago we purchased uh, thanks to. The College of Arts and Science and the university, we purchased a property along the Boise River, kind of at the end of Warm Springs Avenue. And this property is, uh, it's, you know, it's right along the river. Um, it's, it's basically floodplain. 
and it's a great place for birds and bird migration, but it's an even better place for hosting groups and school kids, you know, and developing an outreach program. And so we've, we've had that property now for, you know, the last three or four years, and we haven't really been able to develop uh, our outreach program there the way we would like. But just in the last six or eight months, several different opportunities for funding have kind of fallen in place. Um, I haven't received funding, but um, different opportunities to pursue funding have fallen in place that if they if they do come through, you know, within the next three to five years, that property could be uh, could be built out in terms of infrastructure. So things like a interpretive trail system, boardwalks over wetlands, uh, connectivity with the green belt, so access points from the green belt and from a local city park, um, and also habitat restoration um, efforts. Could, could be done within the next three to five years based on uh, the, you know, these opportunities for funding. So things like creating a side channel, a new side channel for the Boise River that would improve riparian habitat and things like, you know, uh, fish spawning areas, things like that. So, uh, and that's always been one of my dreams for IBO is to have a local year-round outreach program, you know, and a place where we could do that. Not a, not a park for people, but a wildlife area where we, you know, have controlled access for people so that they can, you know, learn to appreciate the Boise River and all that it has to offer. So, yeah. So I'm really hopeful that that's, that's all going to fall into place. So, uh, are there volunteer opportunities with IBO, and if so, how do people find them? Yes, uh, I mean there are pretty much year-round volunteer opportunities with IBO, depending on what folks want to do. If you want to go in the field, you know, and help ban birds or collect data, uh, there are great opportunities for that. There are opportunities to do things in the office as well and help organize, you know, data sets or help promote IBO events, things like that. But uh, yeah, we have a very, very well done website that's part of the university website and uh, you can find you know all the information you want on there about, about volunteering. There are volunteer calendars set up, calendars of our events and um, contact information. If you want to volunteer, who would be the best contact within our group? So uh, yeah, I would go to our website.